So we're going to be in Revelation 2, 1 through 7, but I wanted to start in Psalm 139 and tell you something I heard earlier today from David Jeremiah. He was quoting somebody else, but he said these words. The unexamined life is not worth living. The Bible really teaches us to do self-examination. Some of you are better at self-examination than others. <laughs> Some of you are very reflective. You do maybe quite a bit of analysis on yourself. You see how you're doing. In fact, some of you may suffer from paralysis of analysis. Yeah. Or is it analysis of paralysis? I don't even know how you say it. But, but, but here, here's the thing. Paralysis by analysis. Thank you. <laughs> but the thing is, is that it can be healthy to do self-examination. But Revelation 2 and 3 is not really about self-examination, although it has those implications. But the one who is examining the churches is the Lord of the church, Jesus. And when we read Revelation 2 and 3, as I've already intimated, I think it's quite easy to look at seven historic churches and even hear the views about maybe they represent church history or uh, maybe they represent characteristics of the church over history or even churches today. And take a seat in the bleachers and take a look and say, oh, gee, golly, that's nice. Or we can say, Lord, here I am. I'm ready to do some analysis about my own life. In fact, I'm ready to hear what you have to say about my own walk with you. Boy, that's, that's pretty risky, isn't it? I want you to see the words of David in Psalm 139 when he writes verse 1. Oh, Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, Psalm 139, verse 4, Behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high, I cannot attain it. You could write in your Bible there, it's mind-boggling to me that you know all these things about me. You know when I rise up, when I lie down, what my thoughts are, even before I think them. And then David prays in light of those comments at the very end of the psalm, verse 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Would you turn all the way to Revelation 2, and let's pray. Well, Father, as we come to a searching portion of the book of Revelation, we recall when we did the opening teaching that there's a blessing associated with the reading, the hearing, and heeding of this book. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible has been described as a searchlight, and it is because the light of the world, Jesus, is really the one behind the scriptures. They are a light, and it's almost as if when we open the Bible, the floodlight of God just shoots into our heart, into our mind, and there is analysis that happens, Lord. You do search the heart, and incredibly, David invited you in. He said, Lord, search me and know me and know 
the areas of my anxieties and, and also, Lord, the areas where if I'm off track, if I'm going in the wrong direction, lead me in the right way. Lead me in your way tonight. As we look at a message called Returning to Your First Love, we're just going to look at seven verses, but they're very powerful, about the church at Ephesus. And I pray, Lord, that whatever you want to say to your church, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to your church tonight. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. So in Revelation 1, we were given a list of the churches that John was instructed to write to as he interacted with the risen Christ in his glory. Revelation 1.11, he said, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. I've mentioned before that the number seven is all throughout the book of Revelation, and there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, but these seven are addressed, and they are, in order, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Uh, in the rest of chapter 1, we got the finished description of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. And then in moving into chapters 2 and 3, each of these seven churches mentioned in chapter 1, verse 11, will be addressed individually. There's a basic outline for the way these churches are addressed um, that we will take a look at in a second. And I'll, I'll give you the basic outline. I say basic because it doesn't apply to every single church. But I'll say this. I think most of us, when we study the book of Revelation, would be probably, because it has this exciting last days kind of feel, we'd want to be quick to maybe skip by Revelation 2 and 3 because it deals with seven churches and the, the good and the bad and the ugly, and we might be tempted to rush by this content to get to the cool eschatological prophecy kind of stuff. But one writer put it this way. He said, there's always a tendency in the human heart to become occupied with the dispensation in which we are not, close quote. You see, the end times, when they do unfold, as cataloged in the book of Revelation and Matthew 24 and other places, will really only matter to one generation. So we can get all caught up in last day's um, study and studying eschatology, and we should, and we should look for signs of the times, but truly, there have been a lot of generations before us that have thought they're living at the end times, and they weren't, and they lived, and they died, and life went on. Even in some of the wars in early America, some questions were asked to our founding fathers, is this the end of the world? And responses were given like, it could be, but live as if it's not, because it's only going to really matter to one generation. What is more relevant or pertinent for this hour, and I'm talking about this literal hour that we're in at this moment, is what the Lord of the church says about our walk with him. Amen? Amen. I mean, the last days could be around the corner, but the world could go on for another 1,000 years or 10,000 years. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I have a window of time to live, and the Lord of the church has asked me to live for his glory. And the question is, what am I doing with it? And every day that I live, I have to do some soul searching about just what I'm doing with this life that I've been given. And so as these churches are addressed, I want to very highly encourage you to get out of the stands and get on the field and maybe say, Lord, let your searchlight come into my heart tonight. 
And in the next coming weeks, whatever you have to say to me as a Christian, I want to hear what you have to say. Because really, what you have to say is all that matters. Would you agree? Your assessment of my walk, you're going to be my judge. So what you have to say is all that really matters. Now, there are several C's I'm going to give you that are the general outline of what's given to these churches. Number one, the commissioner, if you're taking notes. Remember, these are going up within a day or two of the time that they're preached, uh, thanks to Jarrett and Andy and others who are serving in these ministries. So uh, say thank you to them, buy them a donut, uh, because they're doing a great job on the, the video audio side. But so you'll be able to access this. So if I go too fast, I apologize for you note takers who are trying to be very copious about your notes. But the commissioner is always going to be Jesus, the Lord of the church. That's the first C. The second thing you're going to see typically is a commendation, something that these churches are commended for. If there's anything praiseworthy, they will get praise for it. Some churches don't have anything praiseworthy about them, and they get nothing commended. And some churches have done, apparently, nothing terribly wrong to be pointed out, and so they don't get rebuked. So you have the commissioner of the commendation. Number three, you have criticism. Uh, Several of these churches will receive criticism from Jesus. He will say, you're doing this well, but I have this against you. So that's the third C. You're going to have some form of correction. When there's a criticism given, there's a correction. That is, here's what you should do to fix it, which is always a welcome thing. If someone points out something we're doing wrong, it's always nice to have a solution. Amen? Okay, I'm doing that wrong. What would you suggest I do? And since you're Jesus, I think you have good suggestions. Amen? And finally, there's going to be a charge to the church. So here they are. The commissioner is Jesus. There's going to be a commendation, uh, a criticism, a correction, and then a charge, what they should do. As I noted, not all the churches receive a commendation, and not all of them receive criticism. But in Ephesus, the first church that is addressed of the seven and I have mentioned to you that some people believe that Ephesus is is first dealt with because of the trade route that I showed you on a map. Others believe Ephesus is dealt with first because because of its prominence as a city. Some people say because, because of its prominence in terms of the early church and its impact in evangelism in the Gentile world. And others say it's because Ephesus was the home church of John, and John is our author. But John is being led by the Holy Spirit, so we'll have to say that there's other reasons most likely for that. As John opens chapter 2, verse 1, he he writes to the angel of the church. Whenever you see the word church there, it is ekklesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, where we get the idea of ecclesiastical and those kinds of things. And the study of ecclesiology is the study of the church, and the church is the ecclesia. The combination of Greek words there means to be called out. So whenever you see the word church, it is literally the called out ones. What are they called out of? They're called out of the world, out of the world system, and called into Christ. That's what the church is. These are the called ones uh, called out in Ephesus. You are the called ones or called out in Corona, or if you live in Norco or wherever it may be. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, This is kind of a thus says the Lord in Old Testament type of language. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Now, if you go back to chapter one, 
verse 20, we have an explanation of these two images. As for the mystery 120 of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, speaking of control and authority of those stars, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So there is a very simple uh, explanation of the symbolism. We have it right there. The angels, um, the seven stars are the angels and the lampstands are the churches. Notice uh, chapter 2, verse 1, the letter, this prophetic message is sent to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The word angel is the word angelos. I mentioned the city of Los Angeles. It's called the city of angels. The Greek word for angel is angelos. And so what does that mean? Well, the word typically, especially in the book of Revelation, means an angelic being, something like a Michael or a Gabriel. But there's been much debate as to whether or not this address is actually to a literal angel or someone else. And I've touched on it already, but I'll just reiterate it. The, the major views are it represents the uh, essential spirit of these churches because churches are essentially spiritual entities or organisms some people say that the angel of the church at Ephesus is not a literal like guardian angel or some angel that has some sort of responsibility for this particular church, but it is more like the essential spirit of the church. Some people say it represents messengers who may have gone to the island of Patmos, picked up these messages and then taken them back to the churches and read them to the churches. Others say that the angel of these churches is the leading pastor or elder or bishop. Uh, because the word angelos can mean simply a messenger. And uh, you'll see a lot of commentators say they think it's the essential spirit of the church. Some people think it's a literal angel. That's up for debate. But I don't think it's a literal angel. As I mentioned, kind of jokingly, there's got to be a better communication system in heaven for God to get word to his good angels than to get, go through a human author to get a message to an angelic being doesn't make sense to me. So that's why there's been four or five different major interpretations about who these are. The commissioner who does write, he is the one uh, telling John to write, but giving the message to these churches. So in essence, Jesus is the one speaking to these churches, although John is the one writing, is Jesus. He's the one who holds the church and walks among the church. So he is in the midst or among his people. Leviticus 26, 11 through 13 says these words. I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with your heads held high. Leviticus 26, 11 through 13. Here's the image. The Lord is in control of the church. He's in control of these messengers of the church, whether they be leaders or the essential spirit of the church. And he walks amongst his people, amongst the lampstands. He's present. He is the light of the world. He's the one that gives light to the lampstand. He's the one that fixes the wicks and pours the oil in that's running out and keeps the light shining brightly. He's in the midst of his people. He said he will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. And so Jesus is in the midst he sees what's going on in the church. So when he gives an assessment of the church, it's because he walks in the midst of his people. Amen? So that could be very encouraging to you or quite frightening 
depending on what you've been up to in the last week, because Jesus walks amongst his people. He knows exactly what's going on in this church. He knows our hearts. He knows what we've been up to. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he has the right to do an assessment on his church, and he's going to do just that for the church at Ephesus. He's going to say, for example, in verse 2, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. Why? Because he walks amidst the church. Now, you might be asking, well, this church at Ephesus, what do we know about them? Well, we know that there was a book written to the church at Ephesus called The Letter to the Ephesians. How many of you have enjoyed the book of Ephesians? Such a great book, isn't it? It's a, it's a book about who we are in Christ, that we're saved by grace through faith, and not, not that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one should boast. We all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Many of us know Ephesians 2, 10. We are his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We know Paul celebrates the love of Jesus Christ in Ephesians 3. And then in Ephesians 4, he says, Now walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And he talks about putting on the new man in Ephesians 4. And in Ephesians 5, he talks about many things like being wise and walking in wisdom and, and, and loving one another in marriage. And then in Ephesians 6, he tells us a little bit more about how to behave and then gives us the armor of God. Well, the church at Ephesus is a celebrated church in the New Testament. It's supposed to be a church that was known for its love and known for you know, being a strong church, but it was located in a very difficult place. And something happens to this church, as we'll see in a moment. I don't know what the time frame was, how long it was from the time that they got, they were strong till they became weak, but um, they obviously had some problems, as we'll see in a moment. Just some facts about Ephesus. Ephesus was located on the west coast of Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey, and it was the most important city in what's called proconsular Asia. When you hear of Asia or Asia Minor in the Bible, it is not Asia as we know it. It is modern-day Turkey. Sean, if you don't mind, just go ahead and put up the first slide there. Just, just a little bit of what they've discovered uh, in this area. This area was known as one of, the, uh, one of the seven wonders of the world was located in Ephesus, and it was a temple that was constructed and built to a Greek goddess called Artemis. Her Greek name is Artemis. Her Latin name is Diana. The archaeologists have dug up statues of her, and when they dig up statues of her, she is this fertility goddess, and what you see on the front of her is multitudes of breasts because what she's supposed to represent is fertility blessings. So the main, uh, uh, I guess you could say, attraction, if you visited Ephesus back in the day, was this incredible temple, and they called it one of the seven wonders of the world. And there was some sort of teaching that went around the city of Ephesus that the great image of Artemis, this grand statue that was in the temple, had fallen from heaven. When Paul went into Ephesus in the book of Acts, which he founded the church on his second missionary journey, and then there were others who helped with the church as Paul left and then came back, um, is uh, Paul was preaching the gospel, and you remember he ran into some silversmiths, and one of them's name was Demetrius. And uh, for the uh, celebration of Diana, they would have an annual spring festival, and they had they had these priests, they would call them curates, and they would march down the agora. Sean, would you go to the next uh, slide, please? 
This is a, a library from probably the second century AD, but go to the next one if you would. And you can see these ruins today. They had a large agora. An agora just simply means like a marketplace. And so the, the curate priest would lead a processional uh, down the street for Diana or Artemis, and the people would shout to her. They would acclaim the goddess, and they would say, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Well, Paul showed up in Ephesus, and he started preaching that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. The true God is found in the Bible, and the true expression or the manifestation of God in, in human flesh is Jesus Christ. And he started preaching to the people, and the pre people were turning from their idols and turning to the living God to the degree that people began to take their secret magical texts, which this area was known for. They, they actually dug, out what's, dug up what's called the Ephesia Grammata, literally the magical texts uh, in this area of Ephesus. And they were known for sorcery and magical spells and that kind of thing. And they would acclaim the goddess, and they would call out to her, and they would call out to her for fertility blessings. And even some of the philosophers, the Greek philosophers of the day, when they looked at the behavior of Ephesus, they decried it. They said, there's so much immorality in Ephesus. It is just, it's a terrible thing to behold. If you've ever gone to New Orleans at certain times of years or, you know, certain places where just ungodliness is everywhere, you, you kind of get the idea of what ancient Ephesus was about. There was ritual prostitution, there, you know, people came here and they would leave money on deposit in the temple. And th this became a very prosperous city as well. Go to the next one, if you would, Sean. And so here's a picture of this agora. And it leads into this incredible theater. Go to the next one. And this incredible theater there today seats 25,000 people. And if you read the story in the book of Acts, you'll see that they end up moving towards the theater, and there are people who are trying to pull Paul away and save him from the mob. And this is the kind of stuff that happened for the Apostle Paul. He came into the midst of an ancient pagan land and began to preach the gospel, and Demetrius got the silversmiths together, and he said, he said this, this Paul is stirring up all kinds of trouble, and he says, gods made with stone are no gods at all. And he's ruined our business. We got a Tickle Me Elmo doll where it's not selling good. It's springtime festival, baby. Come on. This guy's ruining our business. This is what happened in the ancient world. These are the kinds of ruins that are still around today. I think we might have one more. Here's something else that was going on. At many of these locations, they had what's called the imperial cult. What that simply means is that they had emperor worship going on. And, I, and I've mentioned to you that there's a little debate about the dating of the book of Revelation. And the two major camps date it either in the era, era of Nero or Domitian. At Ephesus, there was this huge statue of Domitian. They say it was 25 feet high. And you can see the dimensions as that little girl is there. And it overlooked the harbor and when you came into Ephesus, there was a huge statue of Domitian with his uh, arm in the air saying, if you come into this harbor, you will be under my lordship. And what Domitian claimed to be is king of kings and lord of lords or god of gods. He demanded worship. And to be a Christian in Ephesus was extremely difficult. In fact, 
uh, scholars believe that John was probably the pastor at this time in Ephesus, and he had been banished to the Isle of Patmos because of what was happening in this city, and he would not back down from preaching the gospel. John is writing the vision of the book of Revelation on the Lord's Day. We've concluded that's probably Sunday. And as he wrote to these churches and wrote to Ephesus first, think of what was going on in John's heart. You're the pastor of a church. You've been banished to an island. And that church has to be on your heart. Can you imagine a Sunday morning on an island where you're forced to do manual labor as an old man? You're a pastor of a church, but you can't be with the people that you love. And when he writes to the church at Ephesus, even though it is the words of Jesus Christ, you have to imagine what's going on in Paul's, uh, excuse me, in John's heart. And it is, I'm sure, great concern and great uh, hunger to be with the people that he loves. Well, that's a little uh, taste of uh, what was going on there. And as Jesus addresses the church, he says, verse 2, he says, I know your deeds and your toil, if you have an NIV, your hard work and your perseverance, and that you cannot endure or tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. Now, this is we have the commissioner in verse 1, Jesus. We have the commendation in verse 2. If you're wanting to head these verses, here's what they're commended for. This is what they're doing well. Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know what you do. I know your hard work or your toil. It speaks of uh, working to the point of exhaustion. And I know when you hang in there. And I know you have been. I know you've been persevering. And some of you, you know, you may want to just take to heart that Jesus knows that you've been hanging in there. He knows the good stuff that you've been doing, the hard work that you do behind the scenes that maybe nobody else can see or applaud, he certainly knows that. And this is more he, of what he applauds them for. He says that you cannot endure evil men. Uh, this is a good thing. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. If you were to ca categorize the church at Ephesus, one thing that you would say about them is that they are pretty good in terms of their orthodoxy. They test people who claim to be apostles. They found them to be false. The Greek word for test is parazo. It's a word that means the testing of metals. They, they put them through the paces. They tested their doctrine. These guys were extremely orthodox. And these guys also contra the Corinthian congregation who was celebrating a man who was sleeping with his father's wife and wouldn't even boot him out of the church, they wouldn't even endure evil men. They weren't afraid to deal with sin in the camp. And by the way, whenever you're going to deal with the church, there's always going to be sin issues in the church. You know why? Because we're people. But the difference between a Christian is Christians feel conviction when they sin and hopefully repent of sin. Whereas this man in the Corinthian congregation was being celebrated and it appears he had no intention of changing that relationship with his father's wife. And so Jesus is saying, you know what? I see what you do. I see that you toil. I see that you persevere. He even applauds them for, oh, oh hold on to your seatbelt, folks. He applauds them for being intolerant. Oh my goodness, wait a minute. Tolerance is the God of the new age. I mean, tolerance is what we're su supposed to all be practicing, except if you're a Christian. Then nobody should tolerate you. Well, Jesus says, 
I think it's a good thing that you're intolerant about some things, like false doctrine and evil in your midst. In fact, I applaud you that you test things and find those who claim to be apostles to be false. Turn to the book of Acts for a second. Acts 20 is Paul meets with the Ephesian elders at Miletus on his way to Jerusalem. This is a word of warning he gives to them. Acts 20, look at verse 28. There's so much good stuff in here, but here's what he says. Yeah, that's my famous line, isn't it? 2028. He says, be on guard. He's addressing the Ephesian elders, so the leaders of the church at Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves, Acts 2028, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know, says Paul, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, so that is from among the elders of the church, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you or each one with tears. Now it would appear that the leaders of the church at Ephesus, go back to uh, Revelation 2, heeded the warning from Paul. And they were good at being theologically precise. We would applaud that. We're that type of church, as you've probably noticed. We do care about theology. We want, theology is simply the study of God. We certainly want to honor God with diligent study and presenting the scriptures in, uh, you know, rightly dividing them and that kind of thing. And Jesus applauds them. And this was a church that was concerned about purity in their midst, and that's applauded. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen and 14 says, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers. They're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That was 2 Corinthians eleven, thirteen 13, and 14. You have people who are claiming to be modern apostles, right? Claiming to have apostolic authority. Claiming, some, in some circles, claiming to have more authority than the apostle Paul. That's a scary thing. Because the canon is closed. The scripture has been written. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. I think he has a pretty good amount of authority. So if you want to claim to be some sort of modern apostle, we're going to be careful to check your resume. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets, Matthew 7, 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. The Didache, which is a second century church manual, might be right right at the turn of the century, said that the test for a true prophet is if they behave the same way that Jesus did. So you will know them by their fruits. You can analyze teaching. You can certainly look at someone's life and see what kind of fruit comes out. So Jesus, commending them, says, you have perseverance, Revelation 2.3. You're hanging in there. You're fighting the good fight. You've endured for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. The idea is you've not gotten tired. All things commendable, all great things uh, to be celebrated. And if you are a person who's hung in there tonight and you've not given up and you've not quit, quit on your walk or on your faith, or on things that, you know, you've been struggling with, I think Jesus would applaud you tonight. And I think you can apply that to yourself. But here comes the criticism, verse 4. 
but I have this against you. So some have suggested that there's a model here for management principles. Let me just touch on that for a second. You all know that when you are looking to correct someone, it's always good to commend them for what they do well. Some of you are in managerial positions or you have been in the past. You got to call somebody into your office and you got to correct them for something. It's always good to commend them for what they're doing well. They can receive the criticism a little bit easier if you commend them first. Amen? This is actually a principle in Revelation 2. Jesus celebrates the church. You do well. You're good with theology. You're careful about testing men who claim to be apostles. You don't tolerate evil. You've hung in there. You've persevered. Good job. We've got to balance, just as a general rule, whether it's parenting or running a company, our criticism with our commendations. Amen? If you criticize somebody too much and you never commend them, they're going to lose heart. And sometimes you have to look really hard to commend certain people about things. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) Let's see. What can I think of? Have they done anything good in the last year? I don't know. Right? But sometimes we can overlook the good things that people do. Amen? We can miss it. And we're always pointing out their weaknesses and we never celebrate their strengths. That's a mistake. So Jesus gives us a roadmap here and he says, but I have this against you and this is so poignant, it's so to the heart that it is that searchlight and it's this. He says that you have left your first love. That's what I have against you. You've left your first love. The criticism, if you're taking notes and putting headings here, is that you've abandoned the love that you had at the first. What is this love? If you read 50 commentaries in the book of Revelation, you'd probably get at least three or four different opinions. Some people say what they lost was their love for one another. And that's certainly true, that we can lose influence and light if we don't love each other. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples if you... Love one another. 1 John 3.14, written by the same author that's writing the book of Revelation, says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love God's people. And so certainly one aspect of this love could be their love for one another began to wane. Think about a church that is very good, they're very orthodox, they're very critical about testing doctrine and individuals, they might be more apt to become loveless because they're always on guard about making sure everybody's right and straight and true. And when you're doing that kind of assessment, you can sometimes lose the good parts of people and be overly critical. And somehow churches and leaders of churches have to find that balance in those of us who are part of the body of Christ. What was the leaving of this first love? Some say it was simply a a leaving, and I say simply, although this is obviously not what anybody would want to happen, is that they had left their love for God that they had at the first. And we simply, uh, we can all resonate with that because we all know how excited we were, for those of us who've been Christians for a while, when we first met Jesus and the fire and the newness of that relationship. And it is, it parallels uh, a new relationship when you get married, right? Um, in, the, in the dating stage, when you're courting with someone, you, your best foot is forward. And we try to tell people this in premarital counseling. You have seen the best of them. 
Just get prepared. Right? The old saying is, go into marriage with your eyes wide open. And after you get married, keep them half shut. Right? It's true. And, and for some of us, you know, we can remember times when everything about Jesus excited us. And now... We're just not quite there. The meter has waned. The gas tank is down a little bit. And we have to take a look and say, Lord, search my heart. Now, anybody who's had a long marriage here for decades knows that love deepens and changes. But you have to be intentional in marriage about keeping the fire of romance and closeness uh, there. Because people, and this is a book uh, written by Dennis Rainey some years ago, normally move towards isolation as years go by. We tend to move. We can, we just, it's easy to move towards isolation. You have to do uh, intentional things to stay close. And that was the title of the book, if you're interested, Staying Close by Dennis Rainey. And that was the whole preset uh, concept of the book. Jeremiah 2.2, God says to the prophet, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth, How as a bride you loved me, God speaking through Jeremiah, and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Uh, If you've ever read Jeremiah, you have to know it's a bummer of a book. Uh, Many, many chapters. It's a long book, and it's basically this weeping prophet who has to tell Israel and Jerusalem that they've blown it, and God's going to judge them. And God says early in the book, you know, you loved me with the love of a new bride, Back in the day when I rescued you out of Egypt, but now you've left your first love. Is that the parallel? There are others that say leaving their first love is their love for witnessing, that they've lost their light in the city of Ephesus, that their influence in that city, their lampstand that was once burning bright, now they're not witnessing to as many people anymore. They, they're no longer a city set upon a hill. They're supposed to be the light of the world, but their light is diminishing. They've lost their fervor for evangelism. They've lost their passion for souls. Is it possible that it could be all three? Wouldn't you say that all three kind of go together? If you lose love for God, you typically lose love for people. And if you're losing love for God, you lose love for evangelism. Love is the key. Love is the preeminent fruit. Everything flows from love. If I have the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am nothing. I could have all, know all mysteries. I could speak with the tongue of a- tongues of angels. I could have all knowledge. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. Nothing. And so, 1 Corinthians 13, write down verses 1 through 3, applies. The word for leaving your first love is a Greek word which means to send away. It's the same word used for when our sins are sent away. And it uses this idea of the scapegoat where they would confess over a scapegoat on the Day of Atonement and the scapegoat would go off into the wilderness and it was symbolic of carrying the people's sins away. And this same Greek word is used here of you've, you've left your first love. You've, you've gone the other way. There's a distance between us now. In the Bible, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's, those are the two greatest commandments, which implies to me that love is an act of the will. 
Love is an act of the will. If you have distanced yourself from God, God has not moved. The old image of the elderly couple driving in the car, and they used to drive, you know, his arm was always around her in the days when there weren't seatbelt laws. And gradually, as the years went by, she moved farther and farther away, and now she was pushed up against the passenger side window. And so she looks at him one day and says, Honey, what's happened to us? Why is there so much distance between us? And the husband responds, I haven't moved. (laughs) Look, if we're going to be honest tonight, and I think we need to be, each of us could ask some deep questions about how close are we. If love is truly an act of the will, then we don't have any excuses. We can make them all day long. Well, this, that. The seat's uncomfortable there. Seatbelt doesn't fit me quite right. We can make all of our excuses, but in the end, we have to ask the question that Hall and Oates asked. Have you lost that love and feelings? Sorry. <laughs> there was a story I heard a couple years back about two brothers who were playing in, the, in an area that had big piles of wet sand. As these two brothers were playing on this mount of sand, something like a sinkhole happened quickly. It opened up, and the two brothers slipped down in this huge pile of sand. They were trapped, sadly, one on top of the other. The wet sand was so packed around them that they were rendered immovable. The one brother who was on top was trapped up to his chin. He was just barely high enough to gasp for breath as the wet sand pressed against his body and his chest. After some time, the family came running to the scene and saw the brother barely able to breathe, the sand all around his head. They cried out to him, where's your brother? Where's your brother? And he said, he's under me. I'm standing on his shoulders. You know, the Bible tells us that we're to practice Philadelphia, brotherly love, right? And I think all of us can say, as we assess our Christian lives, we can ask, how often do I read my Bible? How well am I doing in my prayer life? And those are all good things to measure. But my love for God and my love for others really defines my Christianity, And I think that's what we need to look at tonight. A number of years ago, Johan Lukasi of the Belgian Evangelical Mission came to the realization that evangelism in Belgium was getting nowhere. The nation's long history of traditional Catholicism, the subsequent disillusionment resulting from Vatican II, the aggression of the cults, had left the land seemingly impervious to the gospel. Driven to the scriptures, he had read John 13 and devised a plan. First, he gathered together a heterogeneous group, Belgian, Dutch, American, whoever would come. And second, he had them rent a house and live together for seven months. As is natural, frictions developed as as the believers rubbed against one another and bothered each other. This, in turn, sent them to prayer for love and victory. Finally, they went out to witness to others after this experiment of seven months, and they began to see amazing fruit. Outsiders called them the people... Who love each other. Their evangelism method was simply people watched how much they loved each other and were drawn back to the church. If people walk in 
the church in the modern age and they take a look at us, what do they see? If Jesus was to assess the called out ones at Corona tonight, what would he see? May it be that let all we do be done in love. I can't tell you how many times I've failed to love the way that I'm supposed to. So many times. And I end up often praying, Lord, I don't have this kind of love in me, so you're going to have to love through me because I just can't produce this kind of love. And that's what God said. He said, love is a fruit of the Spirit. So the more I'm spending time with God, the natural overflow of my time with Him is going to be more of His love. Now, let's talk about the correction and the charge, which is found in verse 5. What do you do if you've left your first love? What are some good solutions? Well, there's going to be several R's here. You might want to take note of them. One is remember. Literally, the Greek is keep on remembering, therefore, from where you have fallen. You've got to remember what you used to do when you were close. And you've got to go back there. Remember when the prodigal son was in the pig pen and he was eating the pig's pods and he couldn't believe he had ended up there? And he, the Bible says in Luke 15, Jesus tells the story, he came to his senses and he remembered that even his father's servants were eating better than he. So he rehearsed a speech. He said, I'll go back to my father and I'll say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he remembered. He had a moment of epiphany. He, he came to his senses and he said, I'm, I'm going back home. I'm going back home. I think a lot of Christians just need to say that. I'm going back home. And whatever happens, whatever lumps I have to take, and of course, what did he get? A father with open arms who was waiting just to love him. Remember from where you have fallen. You got to know how far you have fallen. And and here's a word that we often think is just for unbelievers, but it says from Jesus to the church. He says, repent. The, the word remember means to recollect and call to mind. The word repent is familiar to a lot of you. It's the word metanoia. And a good way to think of repentance is a radical redirection of one's life in every aspect. Let me say that one more time. Repentance in the Bible is a radical redirection of one's life in every area. You cannot say you've truly repented of something. There is no halfway repentance. Let me put it that way. If you're going to repent, you're going to repent. We don't have to guess that you're repenting, right? If you're going to repent, you're going to do a 180 and you're going to start doing things God's way. Nobody's going to have to convince you. The prodigal son didn't need to be talked into it. He knew that it was time to remember and go back to his father. And so this church is told, look, you, you got to remember and you got to repent. Do the deeds you did at first. Sometimes you got to force yourself to do some things when you're trying to get your life on track because you've been doing the wrong thing for so long, it's become natural for you to do the wrong thing. So sometimes you got to just do what you did at the beginning. What do you think these deeds would be that they did at the beginning? It could be practical acts of love. It could be hospitality. It could be witnessing I'm not sure everything it means, but Jesus says, do the deeds that you did at first or else, here's an or else, you thought only your father said it, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. 
Now, this is a serious warning. What does it mean? Well, if the lampstands represent the churches and the stars are the angels of the churches, and Jesus said, I'm going to take your lampstand unless you change, and the lampstand is something that what? Allows light to shine, then the conclusion is pretty, I think, basic. I'm going to take away your shining in the city of Ephesus. You're no, no longer going to have influence. Some people say it means you lose your salvation. I don't think that's what it means. I don't think that there's enough here to say that's what it means. But I think what Jesus is saying is if you want to have influence in this city, then you need to repent because you're losing your light in the city because a church that does not have love does not have light. Amen? Amen. Have you ever gone somewhere and you're like, man, these, are, these people are serious. There's nobody even smiles in this place. Is this a library? Shh! Just walked in the door. I didn't even say anything to anybody. Shh! Here's a bulletin. <laughs> Take it. Now, if you run into Paul uh, Hicks, the woohooer, there's two possibilities that will happen. He will either scare you to another church, or you will say, I've never experienced any kind of love like this. The holy kiss is a real thing. <laughs> Let me ask you, if you were to categorize the question this way, how well have I loved today? I'm a simple guy. How's that for a simple question? How well have I loved this week? How well have I loved God? How well have I loved my wife? How well have I loved my children? How well, as a pastor, did I love the flock this week? Did I take time? Do I care? Did I pray for them? Was I willing to weep with those who weep and laugh with those who laugh? How well am I loving? That's a pretty simple way to assess your Christian life, isn't it? Lord, what would you say about how well I love this week? Jesus says, if you don't change, you're no longer going to be a light in this city. Isn't that a scary prospect? You'll no longer shine for me. Oh, Lord, my cry would be, then help me to love like you love. Because the one thing I want to do is have influence in this world until you take me home. Yet, verse 6, this you do have, back to the positive, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. By the way, there are things that Jesus hates. Notice, he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. In Revelation 2.15, we'll hear about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Here, in regard to Ephesus, Pergamum will be addressed in 2.15 and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans will be addressed. Here it's the deeds. But remember that deeds always, typically, I, would, I should say, because maybe not always, flow out of doctrine. I was watching a Scientology special I'll deal with on Sunday night. And the man who was confessing to things he had done as a Scientologist in the upper echelon, he literally was trying to ruin a person's reputation by lies and manipulation. And, and the question was asked to him, how, how did you do that? How did you justify that in your mind? He said, because the target, speaking against our religion when I was in the upper echelon, the target to me was so evil because they were trying to undermine our church that I was justified in everything I did, even if I had to do false uh, documents against them and trump up charges and lie about them. I felt justified because they were doing the church wrong. Their doctrine was so messed up that their deeds followed their doctrine. Everybody with me? 
You might ask, who are the Nic Nicolaitans? I have no idea. <laughs> but I have some conjecture. The early church fathers believed that the Nicolaitans came out of a group spearheaded by Nicholas of Antioch, who is recorded in Acts 6-5 as one of the seven men chosen for the widow-feeding program to help the Grecian Jews take care of the widows. And if you look in your Bible, you'll, you normally don't notice him, but in Acts 6-5, he's called Nicholas the, of Antioch. He's a convert from Antioch. And people say that he started a movement called antinomianism or early forms of Greek Gnosticism, which is simply this. Anti means against, and namos is the Greek word for law. And since Ephesus was so immersed in immorality, Nicholas and people like him seemed to argue that you could do whatever you want, morally speaking or immorally speaking, and still be right in your spiritual life. And he led a he led a uh, group called Antinomians or early Gnostics, and this is what they seem to excuse their sin because uh, all that really mattered was your spirit. You could do whatever you wanted with your body. And um, Jesus says, I hate those deeds. Now, here's a principle. We can hate what people do, but we don't have to hate them. Amen? I hate what sin does to people. I hate what it does to individuals. I hate what it does to families when it's happening. And believe me, a good amount of it crosses my desk. However, I am not to hate the individual. I hate what sin does to them. I hate sometimes what people do. But I still want to try to love them and pray for them and still hold them accountable. And Jesus now concludes this section in verse 7 with a familiar phrase which he used many times in the Gospels, especially after he told the parable of the sower, interestingly enough. He said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, this is where we get the English word Nike for victory, an overcomer. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now quickly as we are, we're at the end, we're out of time. The description of Jesus in Revelation 1 uh, about him holding the stars and walking among the lampstands is from the first chapter. The tree of life we'll see all the way in Revelation 22. It'll show up in the New Jerusalem. And the promise seems to just be this. Remember the concern was that they'll eat of the tree of life in their fallen state and live for how long? Forever. So God blocked the way to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. But now in the New Jerusalem, access will be available to the tree of life. And I think it just just speaks of eternal life. Hang in there because you're going to eat from that tree of life and you're going to live forever. Christians, you know, may go through persecution. They'll, they'll go through tough times, but one day we're going to eat from that tree, whether it's literal or figurative, and we will live forever. You might ask, what happened to Ephesus, Pastor Michael? Did they, did they heed the warning? There's an early letter from um, a church father, Ignatius, and he says these words. Uh, he says that Ephesus heeded the warning and turned around. I don't know how long it lasted. Uh, I, I've heard things that the malaria spread through the church in like the 4th, 5th century, but it, it appears that they heeded the warning and they learned to love again. And I would just say to you, wherever you may be tonight, you can learn to love again. Amen? By the grace of God. Father, thank you for this church at Ephesus. We are...
humbled by the content here because it certainly applies to us. And Lord, we're just going to ask that your, your searchlight would be on our hearts tonight. And whatever we need to be uh, praised for, and, and I don't think we should just overlook the fact that you would praise us for what we've done well. I pray that we can receive that tonight. Some of us don't take, take well to compliments. We have a tough time. But thank you that you're willing to praise us for what we do well. Areas where we need improvement, Lord, I pray that we'd hear your voice. Hear what the Spirit says to the church and amend our ways, Lord, whatever that would be. And simply, if it is to love better, then help us, Father. Help us to love like you love. What a great prayer. Just help us to love like you love. And Father, I want to pray over this precious congregation tonight, precious people of God. I pray that uh, whatever's been from me that's not profitable, they'll quickly forget it. But whatever's been from you, they'll let it percolate in their souls and act upon it, that we'll be doers of your word and that we'll love in word and in deed, Father. And as your head and heart is bowed, if you need to return to your first love tonight, if you've walked away from Jesus, if there's been a distance, if a lot of this has spoken to you or maybe it's a love uh, of another person or whatever it may be tonight, as the Lord's spoken to you, act upon what you've heard and take some practical steps and get close to the Lord. Just by being here tonight, you've taken a step in the right direction. And if you have not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, take this moment right now to say, and I would just encourage you, pray it right now, Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. I've blown it so many times. I've failed to love as you've called me to love. But I believe you died on that cross for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead to defeat death, and I'm going to trust you as my Lord and my Savior. I repent of my sin. I receive you, your finished work on the cross, your resurrection for the payment of my sin. Thank you for loving me so much, Lord. Make me more like you, I pray. Lord, that's every one of our prayers tonight. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.